I interviewed dozens of NASA professionals to gather content for the second season of the podcast. It would be impossible to pick a favorite, but I definitely have a particular fondness for NASA Chief Historian Bill Barry. He spoke to the unique role of the history office at NASA and helped me to understand the profound shift in NASA's ambitions between the Apollo missions of 50 years ago to the Artemis missions of today. At its core, the history office ensures that, even as we look forward to the moon, Mars, and beyond, we always stay rooted in our legacy. They help us remember the lessons we've learned from our predecessors. The office also ensures an accurate record of events as they happened. As you'll hear in my interview with Bill, the slightest bit of confusion can lead to interesting, sometimes humorous, rumors and reporting. If you're curious to learn more about the History Office after listening to the podcast, visit history.nasa.gov or follow them on social media. They have a veritable treasure trove of information. Any burgeoning space historian can look to them for the resources they need to begin their exploration. I'm Danny Baird. This is The Invisible Network. What is your name and your role at NASA? I'm Bill Berry, NASA's Chief Historian. Uh, what work does that role entail? Well, the History Office at NASA has been around since 1959, and uh, our first administrator, T. Keith Lennon, set up the History Office because he wanted to make sure that all these historic things that NASA was going to be doing uh, were captured properly. Uh, so the, the sort of the three initial functions for the History Office were uh, to you know, capture a chronology of events so that we kind of reconstruct what happened as, as we went you know, forward. Um, and then to write you know, the official histories of various programs. Uh, and uh, the third thing is, was uh, to sort of increase NASA's uh, footprint with um, historians and historical professional societies uh, because they knew that the history office wasn't going to be able to write all of NASA's history. You know, it's just, it's just, we're just going to be doing too much. Um, so we wanted to build relationships with historians so that um, they had um, access to NASA, knew who to talk to at NASA, and, and we told our story in a way that uh, um, you know, was effective uh, and, and honest as well because you know, the, key, the key point on the history side of things is we want to know what happened uh, so that we can learn from the past, you know, good things we did, repeat them, and also the bad things we did so that we don't repeat those things. And so you have to have both of those things, and so there has to be some uh, historical integrity. So that's one of the reasons why... Um, Keith Lennon hired um, the first NASA chief historian, Gene Emmy. Uh, he basically stole them from the Air Force History Program. And he came over and set up the program. And, and I'm number six in that line of people. On a day-to-day -day basis, what does your work look like? Oh, um, <laughs> well, my job title is chief historian, but it probably should be chief bureaucrat. Because like, like any program uh, that you have to manage, a lot of it is about managing people and the resources. So I spend a lot of time in budget meetings and planning meetings and, and in you know, midterm reviews with people and, and things like that. So uh, there's a lot of that sort of work. Um, yeah, every once in a while, I'll get to do, um, you know, get to answer a question. Most of the questions we get 
are pretty easy to answer, so other people in, in the chain in the history program answer those. If they get to me, they're usually pretty interesting uh, or just weird. <laughs> so um, so I, I get to do a little bit of that sometimes. I get to go speak on behalf of the agency about history uh, to various audiences, which is great fun and, uh, and a great opportunity to, to tell our story. Um, and um, sometimes I get to do weird projects like... Um, if they want to do a movie and it has some historical content, um, I'll get a call from our people who do the Hollywood liaison work, and, and they'll ask me to take a look at a script or something like that, and sometimes uh, I actually get to go get involved in that a little bit. So that's, you know, there's some, there's some really fun parts of the job. It's a, it's a really great job. Um, but it's a job, too, so it's, there's a lot of the usual bureaucracy involved. Beyond the day-to-day, what's the most interesting request you fielded? Oh, we get lots of them. Uh, we had we had one this week about um, whether or not NASA uses whale oil on spacecraft, <laughs> and this is an urban legend that goes way back uh, a number of years. And apparently, we we traced it back. You know, we we've investigated this a couple times. It's come it comes up every few years, and a reporter was doing a story. He said, "I saw this thing on the internet." Well, yeah, of course you saw it on the internet. There's <laughs> lots of things you can see on the internet. And uh, But uh, we've traced the story back, and apparently it comes from the New Bedford Whaling Museum in Massachusetts. And there was a docent there who at one time was telling people that uh, NASA used whale oil from New Bedford um, on, on spacecraft. And, and it appears to us that uh, this person confused the fact that we were using a company that's a lubrication company that is in near New Bedford uh, that originally was a whale oil company but now it's into, now, since the 60s when, when we started buying things from them, um, they've been in the synthetic lubricant business. But I think somebody connected the dots incorrectly there. Uh, but that's, that's one of those curious things that kind of comes up from time to time. You have to answer that, those kind of questions. Say, no, no, really, I know you saw it on the Internet, but it really isn't true. Um, you know, here's the backstory. So, so those, are, th- those can be a real challenge, uh, but they can also be a lot of fun when you can actually find the right answer. Wild. <laughs> um, what brought you to the agency? Well, I could say John Glenn, but that'd be kind of expanding the, the truth a little bit. Um, I was about four years old when John Glenn flew in space, and uh, my mother used to always tell me, all you wanted to do was drive a dump truck up until that point. But then you sat there in front of the TV and watched John Glenn, and, 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 and seriously, the first thing I can remember that I can place someplace in my in my memory is sitting in front of the TV listening to to Walter Cronkite talk about whether John Glenn would get home safely from space or not because of the loose heat shield question. And, and man, I was just hooked. So I wanted to go be an astronaut and you know, go through all you know, this stuff. So I sort of set myself on that track to, to go do that. And uh, I managed to get myself into the Air Force Academy and, uh, and went to pilot training. But while I was at the Academy, I, I discovered that engineering was probably not my forte. And uh, I wound up in the fuzzy studies instead. <laughs> and uh, um, so I pretty much knew then I wasn't going to be an astronaut uh, because it probably wasn't my skill set. But uh, I did an Air Force career for 22 years, and, and I did a lot of things related to space. So I, when, I, when the Air Force sent me off for my doctorate degree, I basically wrote my dissertation on the political history of the early Soviet space program. Um, and so I kind of kept my hand and my interest in space all through my life. And then when I retired from the Air Force, a job at NASA in the international office landed in my lap, quite, quite to my surprise. And so I, I worked in international for... Um, um, about you know, nine years here at headquarters, and then the historian job opened up, and I managed to wind my way over here to the historian job. So. That sort of segues nicely into, uh, so you wrote this paper on the early Soviet program. Uh, what, uh, what were Kennedy's aspirations for the space program, and uh, how did they play out over the ensuing decade? 
Uh, well, this is an interesting thing because, of course, I grew up in the space age, and, and my perspective on it, you know, in fact, I was born in Boston, grew up in Massachusetts, and so the Kennedys were, you know, godlike to our family, right? And um, I always imagined that, that John Kennedy, you know, I listened to those speeches, and, and I thought, wow, you know, this guy really is into space. And then as I grew up and started learning more about space history, I discovered actually he really wasn't interested in space. <laughs> what he had was a political problem with the Soviets, and uh, it, was, it, was, it wasn't just a personal political problem. It was a problem for you know, the Western world. Uh, the Soviets were um, being very successful in space. They had extremely effective engineers and, and a very nimble team, and they made it look like they were way ahead of the United States technologically, which caused you know, all kinds of political problems for the West and also for you know, all those newly independent countries that came into existence after World War II there, you know, they all wanted to, to develop, too, and they look and they say, okay, well, Soviet Union, it was a backward country at the beginning of the 20th century, now they're beating everybody else in space, they must be better than the Americans in, in the West. Uh, and that was that was causing, you know, uh, kinds of political havoc for the Western alliance. Um, so Kennedy knew he needed to do something about it, and, and kind of out of desperation, I, I think he realized that the space program was kind of the key thing. If he could make you know, if you could, you know, nudge the Soviets off of being the leaders in space and, and make it clear that there was more of a, you know, at least parity, if not that the United States was you know, better than the, the Soviets, that that would that was the most effective argument he had in that geopolitical fight. And so, you know, we actually have uh, audio tapes of, of President Kennedy talking to NASA Administrator Jim Webb at the time, uh, and Webb is trying to get Kennedy to approve a, a wide variety of planetary programs as well as the, the Apollo program to the moon. And Kennedy, said, Kennedy keeps saying, I'm not interested in the space program. You know, All we need to do is beat the Russians to the moon. Um, and, and that's what it was all about. So the, the moon race is really something that happened in a very particular set of circumstances where um, you know, there was a geopolitical problem. Going to the moon became the solution to that problem. And the United States was willing to expand substantial amount of resources to make that happen. Um, and uh, uh, if you look at the NASA budget, there's this huge spike in the 60s in order to get us the money to, and the facilities that do that. Uh, and then the NASA budget's been kind of flat ever since then. And it's because the circumstances are the way they are. You know? At that point, you know, the country needed that. And nowadays, we don't need a space program that's beating it because we're not really racing anybody anymore. In terms of a galvanizing moment, what in your mind is the importance of that speech he gave at Rice University that's so often quoted? Oh, that is the best political speech I have ever heard in my life. And, and I've heard many people say the same thing. It, it, it is a masterwork, um, particularly when you realize that, in fact, Kennedy wasn't that excited about the space program anyway. Uh, it's an extremely well-written speech, uh, great speechwriters, and uh, but he delivers it with such panache. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I guess a tough audience. Uh, people in Texas did not like John Kennedy, uh, and so he was basically going into the lion's den, and, and they set up this speech for him to, to talk about space policy, um, and as it turns out, there was like nobody that was going to show up. They, they had real problems, and, and so um, the, at the last minute, the Texas Democratic Organization managed to, to get all the schools in the Houston area to send all the kids. So most of that audience in, in the Rice Stadium, was high school kids who were bussed in. Um, and and uh, but Kennedy goes in there and he just knocked it out of the park, um, you know, giving the sort of the classic inspirational speech, and that's why you see that speech all the time. Um, and many people confuse that one with the first speech he gave in, 
1961, in May of 1961, when he first said, you know, we should go to the moon. Uh, that was really sort of a tentative proposal to Congress on, you know, I think this is something we should do. And, and he had a lot of, like, escape clauses in there about, you know, if you, if you guys aren't going to fund this, don't even bother. And, you know, you, you, all that kind of, you know, it kind of came wrapped in a whole lot of, um, um, you know, strings. Uh, but by September the next year, in September 1962, when, you know, by that point, Congress had, had you know, doubled NASA's budget twice, and we were really serious about going to the moon, and, and, and he wanted to make the point about why the moon was a gold and objective worthy of the United States and why we needed to do it, and, and he just, you know, what can you say? That You just have to listen to that speech. It's short, it's to the point, and it's phenomenal. So in terms of Kennedy's motivations, they were obviously proving American superiority. How do the motivations behind the Apollo program differ from our uh, motivations for Artemis? Ah, well, of course, you know, Apollo comes in a particular moment, and it's part of the Cold War struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, which was, you know, from the perspective of 2019, uh, you know, we kind of, you know, the Cold War's been over, you know, a couple decades now, and people kind of, well, you know... That wasn't that big a deal. It was a big deal, and people were seriously worried about whether they were going to survive, um, whether there's going to be a nuclear holocaust or something. Uh, so the stakes were really high, and so you know Apollo was done in that context, and it became a national um, struggle uh, on on the scale of for the people involved in it, like World War II. If you look at the oral histories that we have of people that were involved in it, or go talk to anybody who's still around who was. Uh, you know, working at NASA during the Apollo period or working for one of our many contractors during the Apollo period. Those folks um, you know, saw themselves engaged in a you know, international struggle and, it, and they had to win. To them, it was really like their version of World War II. You know, they, were, you know, they were a new generation, but they were, you know, they were all young. You know, most of them were, were pretty young and, and hadn't been involved in World War II. But you know, they were carrying on the struggles their parents had done in World War II and, and, and it was their... You know, this was going to be their good war where they were going to win. Um, and, and people were just completely focused on, on doing it. So, you know, Titanic, the struggle, right? Well, it's 50 years later now, right? Um, rocket science, you know, sending people to space, yeah, it's rocket science, but it's not like cutting-edge rocket science anymore. Uh, you know, we've done it for a number of years, and, and so it's... Uh, the, the, the context is very different. Um, we now have a situation where, um, you know, NASA doesn't have to lead everything because we have you know, contractors out there who, who have been doing this stuff for us before. You know, we're happy to let them run with the ball on lots of things and, and come up with great new ideas and develop new things. Um, we have lots of international partners. You know, during Apollo, you know, NASA was involved with other countries, and, and a number of uh, countries contributed significantly to the Apollo program in, in, in lots of ways. Um, but now, um, you know, through that and through the, the decades of... Um, you know, collaboration and cooperation with international partners. Those people are much, much more capable now, and, and they can be you know, true partners in our exploration to the moon and beyond. Uh, so, you know, the context is very different, and the budget context is different. Right? You know, you know, we don't have to. You know, NASA isn't a brand new organization. We've been around for sixty plus years now. Um, we don't have to build, you know, three centers in order to to because for Apollo we had to build Kennedy and Marshall and. Stennis, actually four centers, and Johnson Space Center basically had to be built in the 1960s. A lot of that $25 billion in 1960s money that we spent on NASA was to build that capability and uh, to seed research at universities. A lot of that money went out to universities to set up, uh, to build buildings and laboratories so that we could have a workforce that could work. 
you know, those things are all, that's all been done now, so we don't need quite that giant plus-up in money uh, to make it happen like we did when we were starting from scratch, basically, in, in 1961. Um, so the context is very different, but it, I think the goals are very much the same in some ways. Um, not to prove that we're better than the Soviet Union, because of course we already proved that. <laughs> um, but um, but um, to do the other things that we're that Kennedy talks about, to you know push the boundaries of understanding and exploration, uh, to you know um, you know follow that drive that all humans have to you know find out what's over the next hill and what's beyond that, and 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 to do all those things together in a collaborative way and, and a. And a sustainable and consistent way uh, with, you know, commercial international partners. And, you know, so Artemis is a very um, very different in some ways, but uh, in many ways it, it sort of captures the spirit of Apollo uh, in terms of, you know, um, an appeal to uh, a worthy goal uh, that a great nation and with great partners can, can accomplish together uh, and, and push, you know, humanity's future uh, into the cosmos. When we look at the journey to the moon and on to Mars, what is the biggest lesson that you take from NASA's vast history? I think probably the most important lesson we can take is uh, a heavy dose of humility. It's really important to understand the context of things, which is why I think history is important to to NASA. That uh, you can you can look at a chronology and say, yeah, this is, these things happened in this sequence, and you can look at a list of lessons learned. Lessons learned are great because they're a good way to digest things, right? Uh, but a good narrative history that that immerses you in what was happening. Um, you know, uh, if I was a program manager and I was starting a new project, I'd, I'd read program management histories because I'd, I'd want to know what did the other guys do wrong and what did they do right and how did they do it. Uh, in in you can get some of that from, you know, lessons learned or other things, but a real good narrative history that puts you in the shoes of the person making the decisions, that's a really key thing. So um, I think it's important to, to, you know, read and understand history, and that's part of the purpose of the history office is to get out there and, and get those lessons out. But but if I were to draw one sort of large lesson from Apollo uh, for the Artemis in the future, I, I think a dose of humility is really important because space is really, really hard. And just when you think you've got it, Something will come out and bite you. Um, the Apollo One fire is, the, is, to me, the premier example of that. Uh, everybody in the Apollo program was concerned that we would lose, you know, astronauts in space, and so they're focused on we got to be as safe as possible in space. We got to make sure the spacecraft is capable and those. And and it hardly crossed anybody's mind that ground training and, and ground things could actually be problematic. And so everybody just didn't really think about it. And we put a crew of three three men in the Apollo 1 capsule with no way to open a hatch, 100% oxygen, pressurized above um, you know, normal PSI things, so they can't open a hatch, high pressure oxygen, and a spacecraft that had all kinds of flammable items in it. There were reports that you know, before the fire happened, there were reports from a number of people saying, too many flammable items in the cockpit, we need to do something about this. There were worries about the wiring in, in the spacecraft. Um, you know, there were some people concerned about the 100% oxygen atmosphere. Uh, there were people concerned about the hatch. Uh, and, and the counter-argument was, well, the hatch blew off on, on you know, Gus Christmas Mercury flight, so we want to make sure the hatch can't blow off by accident. Um, you know, they solved that problem, but came up with another one. Uh, they weren't even thinking about it. And, and after the fire, it was like a collective forehead slap by everybody at NASA when they said, holy mackerel, putting, putting a crew in this situation is extremely dangerous, and we just didn't even see it coming. Right? 
And so that's the thing where, where I think history's the, the lesson that we need to draw is that, that just when you think you've got everything you know, wired and, and you're all set and you're feeling you know, pretty confident about stuff, that's when you need to have somebody around poking at the edges going, well, what about this? And what about that? And, and you need to take those things seriously. And, and you can't just say, oh, stop causing trouble and sit down and be quiet. That's the worst thing you can do. Uh, you, need, you need to you know, have a little dose of humility and, and uh, be willing to, to dig into the, the sometimes hard, painful, and expensive solutions to problems that, that, uh, that are all too easy to ignore. And last question. If a member of the public is super interested in NASA history, what's the best resource to get them started? Well, of course, www.nasa.gov will get you to the history site. We actually have a dedicated history uh, uh, page at history.nasa.gov, and that's a great resource for for people if you want to do a deep dive and do research on history. If you want sort of basic NASA history, nasa.gov is the place to go. But... um, uh, but for people who are like, doing students doing papers or or people who are looking for NASA history publications, the history program has published over 220 books and since our uh, creation, and all those available free in PDF format for download, and a number of other NASA publications that uh, that weren't written by the history office, but that we think of important historical content. You can find those all available free online, and, and uh, that's a that's a great place to go. And we also have uh, Twitter and Facebook accounts as well, at NASA History and NASA History on Facebook. Uh, you get a daily dose of NASA History. This season of The Invisible Network debuted in November of 2019. The podcast is produced by the Space Communications and Navigation Program, or SCAN, out of Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Episodes were written and recorded by me, Danny Baird, with editorial support from Matthew Peters. Our public affairs officers are Peter Jacobs of Goddard's Office of Communications, Claire Skelly of the Space Technology Mission Directorate, and Catherine Hamilton of the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. Special thanks to Barbara Addy, SCAN Policy and Strategic Communications Director, Rob Garner, Goddard Web Team Lead, Amber Jacobson, Communications Lead for SCAN at Goddard, and all those who have lent their time, talent, and expertise to making the Invisible Network a reality. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For transcripts of the episodes, visit nasa.gov invisible. To learn more about the vital role that space communications plays in NASA's mission, visit nasa.gov scan.